Sennheiser microphone. Uh, yeah, it, they called it the metal mic in the in the store. They like this is the screamer. This is what they use to front the metal bands. Pull your chair closer. Yeah, yeah. So this idea grave is going to be fueled by um, hooch wine that Alexis bought with a condor on the bottle. Um, trophy brand cashews in a plastic um, bucket that I bought for $3.99 at uh, No Frills, um, as well as Alexis's working vacation back in Toronto to, I don't know, what do, what do you call this, this kind of method of writing? It's a little bit vacation and it's a little bit working. It was mostly like... Um... The idea of uh, Sam and I working together so intensely every day together, that can get really intense after we've been working together for three, three and a half, four years mm -hmm. fully. Um, and then... Get a little closer to the microphone. And then also, is this better? Uh, that's better. Woo! <laughs> Sorry. Spring loaded. <laughs> I don't know anything about mics, it turns out. Um... But also that there was, uh, after when we started, we were really like working full time and we were really hustling. And uh, just this last, I guess, six months, we had a really intense project over the winter. And that's when we sort of decided, I decided that I really wanted to take some time and come back to Canada. There was, yeah, I mean, Los Angeles is such a great city, but there's something about Canada, and there's something about Toronto too. I'm hoping to get to Winnipeg, which is where I grew up, at the end of this. But I, um, I really wanted to visit with old friends like you guys, and um, and I can't stop writing. I mean, we're we're lucky enough to be working on a couple projects, so uh, I'm happy to be writing here yeah and it, i also think sorry to interrupt i also think there's really something about changing your environment to trigger something different in the way you think about your process and the way you think about how you write music and so i've had a couple days yesterday and today of doing some writing and it limits you in a funny way that makes you think about your work differently mm -hmm which isn't always great, and I definitely love the comforts of our studio in Los Angeles, but this is good. It's all a good challenge. Yeah, they say, they say there's all sorts of um, different uh, pathways in your brain that are activated by your behavior. Like, there's a, a, a commonly observed phenomenon where people's uh, people are more likely to forget something right after they walk through a doorway. There's something about the act of walking through a doorway that triggers a, a signal to your mind to change the subject or whatever huh. and so you often get that feeling where you walk into the room and you go like what did i stand up to get you ever have that <laughs> yes yeah. too often and i think that the same thing happens um sometimes like when you're when you've got writer's block or when you're you're working on a project really focused sometimes you need to take a walk sometimes like the best thing to do is walk away from it or do something else i've always been really um interested in um artists who are multidisciplinary for that way uh -huh. um multidisciplinary meaning well if you're if you're somebody who is not just a musician if you also skateboard or if you sculpt or if you do um, spoken word whatever the, the hell sometimes those different acts inform what you're you're looking for in the other artistic pursuit right. yeah you know by making a, a 3d piece It'll help you understand something about the world that you didn't see before. And then that's what helps you 
improve the, the other project. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, I feel like for my own stuff, it's always best to have two things going on at once. Like you can't just have one project. I love having two things on the go. Oh, really? So like yeah. what kind of stuff will you do if you're working on, say, a video, like music a music video? video? Or something? Well, the, the whole, um, the, the whole pathway that led me to do music videos is because I'm a bit scatterbrained like that to begin with. Like when I was studying illustration in Sheridan, I would get into holes where um, the teachers were constantly encouraging you to pick a style and, you know, try try collage, try watercolor, try oil paint, and then figure out which one you like best and then do that forever. Mm. And I would always get stuck where you'd want to do a little bit of everything and you end up overworking your 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 images mm-hmm. and you can see that it's labored and that uh you know he couldn't stop tweaking stuff and what i found about uh scaling up and doing more elaborate things like video there's so much work that it's hard to overwork things if mm-hmm. that makes any sense you like mean you can, like uh that you have to think as uh, for you i'm sure like you are also editing it right like you're you not can just direct yeah yeah whatever how it can be as broad or as or as focused as you want it to be right if you if you are in the mood to do something with um clay or or paint or whatever uh, filmmaking doesn't have any boundaries like you can add those elements to your work seamlessly and still have a cohesion just Mm -hmm. based on like the mood and the storytelling that you're doing Mm -hmm. so um even if i decided that like oh it would be cool to dabble in composing right even though i don't play instruments you can collaborate with other people who write music and you can get the buzz and the the um excitement from being part of that world um at, at a surface level you know you can be a tourist in a lot of things if you decide to to be uh, filmmaker it's it's uh, inherently multidisciplinary i think yeah and i think that it uh because of that it, it's an easy uh thing to um to stay stimulated right you can um const- it's it's a medium that uh makes it really easy for a reinvention as opposed to you know something like um if you were uh, mark rothko you know how many how many different paintings of of uh, feathered, colored cloud things can you make before Not you enough. kill yourself in your bathroom? But <laughs> <laughs> um, bump. Um. So the but I and I was asking you before because I think your music videos are great and I imagine that there's not a lot of production finances that go into it mm-hmm. when you're doing those. It seems like your production designer, director, editor, yeah, or yeah, do yeah. you have a team? Or uh, when like it depends. It depends. Every project's been different. I mean, mm. it depends on what you're going for and what looks you're going for. I um, personally, the last, the, the body of work that I have so far was my alternative to film school. I just thought that as opposed to uh, spending more money and, and going to film school, it would be smarter to just like start making music videos yeah. and you learn as you go, you learn how to edit, you learn how to construct these things and how narrative works and how to keep images stimulating and, and interesting and engaging. Mm-hmm. And how do you express yourself through that by just doing it? So, um, yeah, that's that's what it's all been about thus far. But what about the technical stuff? I mean, I feel like the thing that I get really tripped up about is not so much 
creative stuff, although that's its own like challenge. Mm -hmm. But then there's thinking of the idea and then executing the idea. And I would think that finding the right camera and the right um, lenses or filter or whatever, like the right light. We so we did that video. And when we were talking to the DP about like what we wanted to do, (laughs) this is not a shameless slag if that's what you're laughing about. But no, I, I, I know, I know where to, I, I, um, I can empathize. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just with that, you. Yeah. that when we, when we, uh, thought like, oh, we should do this thing. Um, we looked at other videos where mm-hmm. we liked the style and we thought that looks so simple. It shouldn't mm-hmm. cost a lot of money and it mm-hmm. shouldn't really take a lot of effort. Right. Yeah, it, yeah, it'll, yeah. it takes us four songs to, or four minutes to sing the song. Let's like just have a friend who's a DP come over. But he came over and he he was so smart and knew so much about like light and so much about like all these different elements that we had no idea we just sort of thought like well what you just have a nice camera and that's what makes it good but even a nice camera can make shitty visuals yeah this is the thing that i haven't really understood yet like i haven't seen how such a great camera could go so wrong i've only seen the stuff that's releasable so it looks good so i just sort of i know i know that's very mindless to assume that like it's it's easier than Mm. what it's made out to be or whatever it does make a difference like you you could see a difference between an amateur using a super 8 camera like mm. if you look at all of the amateur tourist photos of on super 8 from back in the 60s Mm. they're really beautiful compared to some of the the stuff that people shoot on their iphones for instance right yeah so it does film does have a quality that's that's really painterly and and nice like by default Uh but um when it comes to um, digital cameras and stuff that I use, yeah, you can, if, if you, um, if you're not patient with it or if you are using it recklessly, you can make bad stuff with it. So what did you start with when you first? Just, I, well, I was a complete novice. Um, but, uh, so the first camera I bought was a Canon 8,500, which is just a, uh, point and shoot. Uh-huh. It's a little silver point and shoot. And, um, it's probably about $700, $800 when I got it. That shoots video? No. Oh. No. So it was a, like a photo. It like was a, a photo, like a photo camera. camera. Like if you watch the Of Montreal video, if you watch um, the video I did for Morris Eros, like back in the day, mm-hmm. um, it's just it's just go motion. Like you basically um, hold the shutter on the point and sl- snap and you have your actors go through all of the motions uh, slowly like half speed and then mm. you import it back into the computer and you play it at 12 frames a second and it gives like a cool jerky stop motion effect oh i the have other... to re-ro- rewatch this mm-hmm. with that in mind and the other sick thing about uh doing it that way which ended up being an advantage it ended up being like au courant uh-huh. as they say is uh you can shoot in raw when you do it that way so back when i was first starting you could go in and grade the footage afterwards and do um, a lot of the versatility and dynamic range that your friend would have used to uh, process the footage um, in your video to get it to have that certain like kind of flat look where like the blacks disappear and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called grading, and it's easier when you have a raw uh, data file um, that you can get from you know a, a red camera or from whatever so wait when you say a raw data file what exactly so you know when you to? do camera raw on your on your any kind of consumer slr uh-huh. um what that means is that it's an uncompressed format 
So there's a lot of data in the sh in the shadows and in the highlights that um, would normally be compressed away when it's turned into a JPEG so that you can apply it to your card. Mm. And you can bring that that high data file into Photoshop and you can do things with grading where you make the shadows kind of purple or like you make the shadows blend seamlessly into the... It, it works for really well for getting uh, skin tones that look really fleshy and, and nice. And that and we associate the look with m movies because film has much better um, or used to have much better dynamic range than, um, than digital. Okay. So then going back to your, like when you first started, mm -hmm. you just used whatever you had access to or you yeah. bought, you, I mean, $700 for a camera for someone who's never done it before. That's kind of a lot of money to spend. I mean, compared compared to what, right? Like the the compared average standard definition um, video camera in two thousand four was uh, twenty grand. Yeah, like the the standard uh, Canon um, video cameras that you could buy at Henry's or whatever Just were fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. So I felt like seven hundred dollars was was nothing. You know. I guess I just I, I think about and in terms of Sam and I recording in our home studio mm -hmm. and just using whatever we have in terms of instruments, in terms of mics, in terms of preamps, like all of that kind of stuff. Uh, I feel like when we started, we would love to have spent $700 on like mm. any amount of equipment, but we just didn't have it. Yeah. But people like Daniel Johnston, which to me, uh, and, and he didn't have any kind of equipment that was like could complement his sound or whatever, yeah. but he did it anyway, and there was something in What did he have, just a four-track or something? I don't know. The, the documentary that The Devil and Daniel Johnston, I thought it was just like, just a, I don't even know if it was yeah. a four-track. I don't even know if it was like <laughs> anything more than like, yeah, yeah, something like that. But then these recordings that had such like spirit and artistry to them, mm -hmm. it was like, that was enough. And yeah, so yeah. that's where I'm sort of thinking... Uh, you know, and then, and uh, as we were talking about before with Ryan Treecarton, like mm -hmm. these videos that kind of look like there's not a lot of production value and it's yeah. possible he spent a lot of money on those videos. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but that you just sort of work with what you have and, and that there's still value in that. There's still something sure. really great to be done. Well, but I mean, look at the paranormal activity movies. They they don't spend any money on it. That's very high art. And they... Uh, <laughs> They're making a killing. I mean, there. Cory Doctorow wrote this great um, Boing Boing essay where he was talking about um, the pitfalls of having too long a checklist for your um, method of creating stuff. And he was kind of talking about being a writer and, and whatever and how he used to fall into this habit of saying like, okay, you know that Charlie Kaufman scene in um, Adaptation where he's like, I'm going to get started, but first... I need a muffin. Yeah, banana nut muffin. That's a good one. Coffee and a muffin. Then I'll get started. You know, and sometimes when you're in a, a slump, that list gets longer and longer and longer. You can go like, I'm going to start my epic novel, but first I got to save up and I got to buy that new MacBook Pro because that's going to make all the difference. I can buy that MacBook Pro, I could go to Starbucks, and then I can get my Starbucks card and I can get my second refill coffee and I could sit down and I'm going to write my neck and dog. And then eventually, you know, there's all these setbacks and you go like, oh, but it's Christmas coming up. So I got to wait until that comes up. Yeah. Um, there is there is something nice about uh, deciding to start. Um, I saw I had like a Netflix account for a little while and um, there was a documentary 
about digital cameras, like digital versus film. And they were interviewing a lot. Was of, that the Keanu Reeves thing? Yeah, Keanu Reeves is entertaining. God bless Keanu Reeves. Yeah, he's great. He's he's. Uh, we always laugh with Keanu Reeves because it feels like it's he would be if your buddy got famous. Like he's just a regular guy. You didn't even know he was interested in acting. <laughs> Suddenly he's this big Hollywood star. And you're watching him. You're like, he's not that good, but I I, I like him. I'm rooting for him. It's like, yeah. he's not he's not obnoxious. Yeah. No, not at all. So, anyways, and uh, yeah, so Keanu made this cool documentary about uh, cinema versus or uh, celluloid versus uh, digital film. He's sitting down talking to David Lynch, and. Uh, Keanu's like, do you think this is going to lead to a giant renaissance in movies? And David Lynch is kind of sitting back. He's like, well, you know, Keanu, (laughs) there's been very cheap access to pencil and paper for a long time. And there hasn't been too many people who have written work as good as William Shakespeare. So I don't think that the tools are going to be... You know, the thing that defines it. <laughs> oh, and you didn't like play out the, <laughs> that the impression. great impression. Uh, it's <laughs> not fresh <laughs> enough in my mind. Like, well, it it's perfect. fucking great yeah. for however fresh it is. It's this thing and the thing comes out of this other thing and it's in the mist. And we see, we see, what is it? Is it a face? Digital, the little gizmo, 40 minutes and... You can be running this camera and talking to the actor, starting over again. And they get down in there and they catch a thing that never would get caught if you had that giant thing there. I love that. <laughs> Did you ever see the, the making of... Um, there was special features on Inland Empire where he talks about making quinoa. God yes. damn, that's the funniest <laughs> thing ever. And then he tells that creepy story about being on the train in the desert and the guy selling the sugar water and stuff. Uh, I vaguely remember oh, this. Wild. I love that. That's like one of my favorite David Lynch things, and it's not even a movie. It's just him talking about shit. Yeah. Yeah. We're making quinoa. <laughs> I'm checking the clock. 30 seconds, we will add the broccoli. We're cooking quinoa. Quinoa is something that I like to have for dinner um, oh, every chance I get. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. So back to circling back to, uh, and David Lynch, I think, is a great reference for the idea of working with multidisciplinary. Yeah. yeah, and and also the idea, I feel like he's the kind of artist that will work, like he will create regardless of what he has access to. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, Sam and I both, I think, reference him a lot for, like not so much inspired by what he does, but inspired by the fact that he does it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something about, like, he just seems, uh, I, I mean, it's, like, so redundant to say, but he just seems unbridled in his creativity. And, yeah. And there's something really inspiring about that of saying, like, okay, how can I try and access that? And yeah. regardless of where I am and what equipment I have, and Sam and I definitely get into a lot of things where we think, and as film composers, there are times when a filmmaker will say, we really want to have this sound, and it's something that we know that we can't do with what we have, or mm. at least we feel like we can't do yeah. it with what we have, or we've never done it before, or we don't know how to get that sound. And it's a real scary prospect to go, we don't have a choice but to figure it out. 
mm-hmm. and we don't have a choice but to do it really well. Right. And then the torture of like trying to figure that out and failing a bunch of times and and making stuff that just sounds fucking terrible until you do something that you like and that's acceptable. And uh, that the whole pro- and that that is a process of creativity. I think when I think of creativity or before going through working with filmmakers in this way, I thought of creativity as all positive. Mm-hmm. Like all of creativity is just this wonderful thing if you can be creative. But I think now my definition of creativity contains a lot of lows. Yeah. With that like one high, mm-hmm. the one high when you like start out and you think it's going to be great and then it's like low and then you finish it and mm-hmm. it's high. Very similar to the arc of like having a baby or whatever, right? The people always skip over the 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 hell that is bringing <laughs> projects into into the world, and uh, all it is 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 uh, fond memories of the euphoria and stuff of of it coming out and being proud that you went through the effort of of putting that thing together and you laugh at all of the the fights and stuff that happened and you know when somebody crashed the production truck and. <laughs> Yeah, all that but but uh, also, and I, I'm still trying to get back to you, like your music video stuff. And I think that uh, I'm not sure what your first was. Your first music video, the like frog, or was that not even a music video? There was like a princess and the frog, or the like. There was like a yeah. I did a, I did a frog puppet movie thing that was for uh, Bravo TV. Was that not a music? That wasn't a music video. No, it was kind of it was kind of just a. Um, it was just a short, not just, but like it was yeah, a short format. Well, I was, you know, again, I'm just kind of finding finding my footing and stuff and trying things, and um, it seemed like, you know, after you do a few indie videos, the next two avenues open when you're working in Canada are try to get much facts and and do higher budget music videos or try to do bravo facts where you can do short films mm. and um so the idea was to just try to get a, a short film grant and then try to screw around with that so i collaborated with um the guys from exploding motor car who were like toronto um, directors and artists and stuff and were kind of a cut above me like i consider them um contemporary like uh, part of the same scene but a little bit higher above like those guys are geniuses and um so i got to to work with them and i got to um scratch an itch building puppets and things and doing lots of jim henson type of stuff and um it was also an experiment in um i'm really i feel like the, the the breakdown in my own entertainment when it comes to watching movies is the audio experience in a piece is much more important than the the video experience like if you have an amazing soundtrack or if you're doing a music video where the where the the song is incredible you don't need much for the visuals to to make it totally work and obviously um there's a synergy and a a magic that happens when both are in tandem and they're both at a world-class level but um i i feel like it's it's always about 70 30 the audio experience is always more important than the visuals and so for the um the bravo short um i was really keen on working with my friend dean zenos um on um kind of doing like uh, a film score type approach i wanted to do like a john bryan or like a, a johnny greenwood type of um atmospheric score that um, had like a Steve Reich influence, but where you take elements that are from the story and you use them as instruments in the thing. So we sampled, you know, frogs and ponds and stuff, and we sampled like wood banging together, and we we tried to build up a, a soundtrack 
with like elements that were in the visuals. And that was kind of the the main goal from that project is I wanted to learn about playing with sound and really. And so sound works as together. a filmmaker, as like a kind of, the the point of the thing is like a visual mm. thing. You were more interested in the audio in in that particular project. Uh-huh. Um, it was about learning how the process works of working with a composer and figuring out how that works with editing. Um, I thought. One of the things that I learned the most was that it's really interesting to get the composer to edit the video after. Oh, did he edit because, it too? Yeah, Dean edited it, and nice. it's it's a, it's a funny thing. Like musicians are almost always natural editors. Like it, it's kind of a similar. It seems to be a similar part of the brain that it's using. Um, they're really intuitive about being able to know where the visuals should cut. Yeah, is stuff. it about like rhythm? Is yeah. it is that something like? Yeah that there's a rhythm to it. Mm-hmm. I find that with scenes where even when it hasn't been there, the, the filmmaker and the, uh, the director and the editor haven't worked with temp music or whatever, when you're watching it, you can sense this kind of like, there's a pace to it. Mm-hmm. And that's often how Sam and I figure out like where we start with yeah. like what the cue is gonna do. Mm-hmm. But I, so, and I guess does Dean edit? Like what did you, what, what software did you use? to do the editing or to yeah, do Yeah, because I yeah. mean, isn't that part of it now is that you have to like figure out a software. You know, I think one of the challenges when I started writing for film was not just like, how do I do this good? It was like, mm-hmm. how, like literally how, what do I record? What is the, like, how do I sync up the, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so learning the program. Yeah, I mean, video editing was, was such a challenge. You'd probably find, if you were interested in learning it, like, I think you'd find video editing to be one of the easier software things. But isn't that like a huge part of being good at that thing is mm. knowing the software really not well? Really, or? Not really. Um, you can get by and do an edit um, with just knowing three key commands and mm. the, the compression settings to export the thing. I'm sure you know, on, in, editors on Premiere, would love it's like to hear. The C yeah. key is, is for the razor blade and you can cut the clips up and the V key is for the arrow to move the clips into the order you want and then there you go. Give me my union card. It's But it's, it's one of those things where it's like painting, right? There's an infinite universe of possibilities within right. there and really the, the hard part is the decisions that you're making and not the technical right parts of i guess it. i think i think that the technical part is really like a huge challenge I, I think you could pick it up in in a month all right you know the basics you can pick up in a day and i think you could get fast at it in, yeah. in a month yeah i guess in that way it's sort of learning by road it just sort of seems like such a don't be scared alexis <laughs> i don't want to don't become make the, edit. the editor you were born to be <laughs> i might shit <laughs> Um, so what was your first music video then? I I thought I, I think did, one of um, the first things I saw was the Princess and the Frog. Oh, okay. Uh, thing. Yeah. The um so well, there was also something with kites. Or was Yeah, that... that's the Ev Montreal video. So the the chronology is uh I went to school for computer animation and um I did a student film that was this weird thing about um terraforming this little old man on a a barge like shooting rockets at planets and stuff and uh that kind of through that like we learned after effects and stuff is just part of the curriculum Mm -hmm. and i was like holy shit this this is awesome like i i was kind of skeptical about going into computer animation just because i don't really like animators i think that they're weird and they got like a thousand yard stare and (laughs) 
I, th- I think that they're nice people and stuff. Like but vocalists. I, yeah. I'm just, just joking. They don't have a semi-autistic or whatever. Every time I, I, I have, I have hang out with an animator, I sense that like they're, they're watching the rhythm of my squash and stretch <laughs> and my hand and stuff. I'm trying to analyze it. Um, so, so anyway, I didn't really dig that scene and this, there's something terrible about, um, the, the atmosphere of a computer animation lab, like the dark, areas that you need for monitors uh, are conducive for people working 76 hours at a terminal and eating Dorito dust and Red Bulls. <laughs> right. and, oh, like the God. kids who play whatever that computer game is. Yeah, Fuck, StarCraft or whatever. Is it StarCraft? Is uh, that it? Um, so, yeah, I got I got turned off of, of the of the computer animation scene, but I really liked the, the cinematic side of it. Like, and I thought that it's, it was really cool to be able to assemble stories. And, um, there was a lot of cool music videos that were coming out at that time that were inspiring. Um, I think it was around the era just after kid a, there was a lot of really crazy videos that came out surrounding kid a, like uh, the Pyramid Song video, mm-hmm. I thought was really moving. Um, they had uh, a couple of um, CGI videos of um, of orca whales, but they it was all done with just the the black, just flat black and flat white, and with the markings on the orcas swimming past the camera, you got a sense of their form with just the the negative space, and I thought that that was inspiring. Um, and at the time, uh, one of the indie artists that we were into as we were just getting into the scene and starting to listen to bootleg MP3s and stuff from off the internet was Wax Mannequin. And that was a trip because, uh, going to a Wax Mannequin show in college, you can't believe his bravado and stuff. Like he's playing at, at these bars in 2004 with like eight people in it. And he's he's like basically uh, Freddie Mercury or whatever mm. with all this confidence. And uh, we were we were really um, big fans, me and Dean. And uh, so we thought it would be fun to do a video for Wax Mannequin. And he was fucking thrilled like that's, <laughs> that anybody would uh, that anybody would um, want to put. Uh, so much work into something that he made and collaborate on something. So me and Dean and my friend and my Russian friend, Ilya Schwartz from college, we had like a drawing party, which was really uh, a pastime that we had taken from college where you just get together and you do a jam and everybody passes around scrapbooks of paper and uh, pens and and markers and things. And you, interpret what you're hearing in the music and then you take the best parts and you go like okay there's your video and so uh i borrowed my friend rob's computer while he was at work i would go down into his his basement suite and i would boot up his computer and i'd um load up after effects and i'd scan the drawings that my my friends and i made and you figure out how to build puppets out of 2d like all of this stuff is 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 so rudimentary now because like uh, it didn't take four or five years before there was hundreds of like cut out animation after effects videos by illustrators. Like it's, I think it's part of the Sheridan illustration curriculum now is that you do an after effects video based on your illustrations. But at the time, like I felt like it was, it was pre it was YouTube hadn't even didn't exist yet. So I felt like we were figuring out how to do everything from scratch. It's like, Oh 
you can move the the center point of 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 the layer and then you can build an arm out of that and this can connect to this and then you can move and uh the processing power even though rob's computer was a beast it was probably you know a, a one core intel pentium 300 or something so you had to work at uh at one quarter resolution on a 640 by 480 image and it took forever to render and um it was super crude but such a good like learning experience and um that led to own palette liked that video and so i did something for owen palette and then that led to of montreal and that led to and it like, was because these work, people right? had seen mm-hmm. your work was it online or like where yeah, yeah, was yeah. it you add it you add it to um i think the first site that was for streaming video like it used to be before youtube you could go on to cbc website had a login thing where you could submit canadian content and they would um i think put it on cable sometimes under wow in the middle of the night or whatever um the much much had a, a submission system where you could output the the video to beta and then they would play it on the wedge um, no way. Or they'd put I it on no muchmusic.com. This was like 2000, 2003, 2004. Four. So a lot's changed. Yeah. Yeah, it was weird. So it, it was on like the CBC website and it was on the, the much thing and it That's kind of, cool. you know, rolls from there. And it was, it, it's like the very beginning of the internet becoming mainstream, right? So there's not a lot of people making stuff. And so you can, if you're showing up and, and doing things, people notice it. Um, which is always like kind of the, the best part about, um, being willing to experiment with things, right. Is right. sometimes when you're the first to the party, you end up being an influential, um, person just by default, like nobody else was there. So he, he's the greatest star that, you know, uh, cold river Ontario has ever produced. <laughs> is that where you're from? No, 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 no. No, are you ta- are you talking about yourself as being a big star? You know, no, no, no. I'm saying that like the when you um, start adding clips to the internet in 2003, right? People are likely to see them because there's not a lot of stuff out there, right? Like you're right now with YouTube, like it's starting to pick up where um, even mainstream productions are all putting stuff on YouTube. And getting 21 million hits or whatever. Yeah. It's it's hard to get big numbers anymore on, on YouTube. Yeah. So. so, okay. So then uh, Of Montreal gets you to do a music video. Was there a point ever where you felt like, like it seems like you haven't really re- repeated yourself. You know, yeah. all of the videos that I've seen of yours are incredibly creative and oh. interesting and different. And yeah, what's your like what is the do you feel any pressure to like okay i'm gonna do something yeah. totally different on this one and does does that stress you out or did you feel pressure with a band like of montreal you know getting you to do a video mm. is that pressure or is that still like fun and still experimenting and it's fine well i mean like from my point of view uh, there's so many directors that are so much better than i am on on the internet that i don't really have a lot of pressure I don't put a lot of pressure on myself just because I don't think that uh, I have the, the facility or the um, the resources to make uh, stuff that competes on that side of it so because I just approach everything as just like casual as an amateur or whatever I'm just kind of 
uh, I think I said earlier that like it's my alternative to, to film school, right? Mm-hmm. So I am just still fucking around. Um, I think that uh, you know that alleviates any any kind of pressure, and that's that's why everything is so experimental. Is because I try to figure out something I can learn from each each project. Um, so you don't ever, I mean. You know, one of the the images that I really love is the accordion paintings mm-hmm. that you've done. I think those are so cool looking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so where did those come from? I mean, is there ever a point where you're like, this is not going to work? Like, this is... Oh, yeah. I've gotten into trouble a couple of times where I, I thought, like, on paper, something was a good idea. Then you actually start to make it and you go like, fuck, what am I going to do? <laughs> But sometimes that's that's what leads to like breakthroughs, right? Like, uh, I think if you do enough work, and I'm sure it happens with music too, if you sh- keep showing up every day and keep going to your desk and knocking your head against the wall, eventually you'll pick up steam and it'll find itself. Like you gotta do your part where you put in the hard labor, and then that allows for. Um, the work to get better like in so a mysterious kind of way is the creative process just sitting down and like staring at a blank page yeah and i kind of i don't really have like the way i kind of work is just intuitively have you ever seen the um documentary rivers and tides yeah the andy goldsworthy andy goldsworthy uh i Amazing. fucking that guy is, is is such an inspiration for um i think anybody who wants to do any kind of artwork Cause it seems like he's got a cute little blonde family and he's got, um, he looks healthy. He's working outside. Um, and he has a very unpretentious approach to like all the stuff he's doing. He's like, I'm going to treat this like building a wall. I'm going to go out to the field and I'm going to work with the stone. I have to find the stone. It takes a year. It takes many, many decades to understand the stone, that kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, I think that that's such a that working class artist type of thing is I th- I think the the most appealing approach to but it. What I'm curious about with a guy like Andy Goldsworthy is like, and any artist who's successful really is that you know there's there's a period right where like it sucks, mm. and what is that like? What is in that where? you or or was he just brilliant like right off because i think his pieces that i've seen now and in that video what is what is he like in his maybe 60s maybe late 50s 50s. Mm. i don't know he might just have white hair he (laughs) He might be 32 yeah um no but the idea that everything that i've seen in that in that documentary or when i've looked up images it's so elegant and it's so simple yeah but also incredibly complicated and uh, when Sam and I are um, starting on a project and thinking about like, what's the palette going to be for this? Like, what is the palette for, you know, the basketball documentary or something mm-hmm. like that? Like, what is the sound that's going to help the audience connect to these people who are doing this thing? And it's got to be of a certain style and it's got to be captivating, but it's got to be good and it shouldn't be hokey and it shouldn't distract from the thing. And it's all these like things that you have to hit and yet when we hear, when we watch documentaries that are great and the music is great, it's so deceptively simple. Yep. The, and, and how do you, like, where, when, when am I going to get to that, <laughs> Jesse? I, I don't think we ever know. I think that, like, uh, we just got to keep showing up and eventually you, 
like I find, like I said, when I was talking about illustration before, that was such a laborious um, process. Like I can imagine what my instructors must have been thinking. You know, you watch students just completely butchering images and like being stressed and taking other work and going like, I don't know what to do. I can't think of anything. <laughs> it's like, uh, have you ever heard that Chuck Close uh, quote that, um, inspiration is for amateurs. <laughs> I like that. I, I totally think that's true. I think you eventually get to a, a level of maturity where much like adults are able to like compose themselves and, you know, and little kids are barely able to con- control their hands. Like they're just completely, you know, off the leash and, and crazy. I think that as you mature, it, it becomes more obvious and you're more patient. And sometimes you can do that. Um, what's that, uh, that Sherlock Holmes idea where there's a, a three pipe par- problem where you got to smoke three pipes before you decide to, to, to think about before you start on a, a mystery or whatever, mm-hmm. you gotta, you gotta lay back and, and kind of relax and, and know that like, it'll come to you. Um, I think that like when we are starting out, the, the craziest part about it is trying to get over the anxiety, right? Where you know that you got a deadline or whatever and you're freaking out and you're trying, you're worried about your identity and what people are going to think of the thing and you're self-conscious and, but you're also ambitious and you want to try stuff. Um, and all of those are not always positive forces that lead you to, to making something that's honest, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that what's, what's nice about getting older is that you, you get a little bit better about, um, being patient and not taking everything so goddamn seriously yeah and uh just being able or to being say, original i mean i think yeah. that's something that i remember being uh going to humber and being in the jazz program there and it felt like everyone else was who was doing interesting things like writing interesting pieces it was like they just seem so original or it's mm. it was in like not just four four it was in five four or seven four it was like all these complicated meters and it was uh it was just so it was difficult and mm. that gave it validity yeah if it was difficult and um in the film scores that i love I'm always so blown away. And I think Gustavo Santolaya is one of our favorites and one of the guys that we reference a lot where um, it's so, when we break it down, when we listen to it and be like, what the fuck is he doing? That it mm. just like, it's, it's, it makes your hair stand up on end and it, it works with the picture, but it's not hokey. It's not, it's not like Mickey Mousing everything. And Sam went to uh, this event for the LA Film Festival where Gustavo Santolaya was doing a talk and he talked about how he got started and he was talking about um, Inuritu I think that was I'm pretty sure but I've had a couple glasses of wine so I could be getting that wrong if that was the first filmmaker uh, Imama Tambien or whatever <laughs> How, what is it how is it yeah Tambien Tambien Imama Tambien Anyway, the the movie with uh, Diego Luna and Gail Garcia Bernal, mm-hmm. um, where, and I, that's Inurito, right? I'm like, I need my fucking. Eye. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I'm pretty sure it's Inurito. But uh, that he sent Gustavo, and Santolaya was like a producer hmm. or something, and um, he sent him the script, and Santolaya was like too busy and couldn't do it and didn't 
didn't really want to do it or whatever. And then uh, after like some pestering, I gather, uh, he read the script and was sort of like, oh, this is actually pretty incredible. And then mm. that like started his career doing that. And now he's like won a couple Oscars and everything he does is brilliant and yeah. heartbreaking and perfect for the film. And it turns out that he doesn't really know anything about like music theory or anything like that. And so when Sam will figure something out on guitar, he'll always be so surprised at how it just like plays itself. It's the simplest mm -hmm. way. Like it's not difficult to play at all, but finding that thing is somehow such a challenge Yeah, and, and, and accepting it and being like, it's okay that it's this simple. And I think in that way, you know, we've joked about this uh, when Sam and I are sort of sitting at, he'll be playing guitar or I'll be sitting at the piano. We'll be trying to find a theme for a new project. And we always wonder, you know, like what it's like for Philip Glass when he sits down <laughs> at the piano <laughs> and is like... He's like, well, you know, the old standard. <laughs> yeah, like does he ever sit and be like, I just cannot do another arpeggio God, i will fucking shit myself or or if he sits down and is like hmm what i've got it and then like does it done and i and and i think i've read something or or something i get the sense that he knows fully well of what he does and he's like this is what i do they're and new yorkers is, right like him and steve reich working class guys philip glass used to drive a taxi you know, I think that he's probably got a, a very um, down to earth kind of approach to things. Richard Sarah is part of that scene too. Have you ever watched his his Charlie Rose interviews? Oh no! Oh god damn, they're amazing. <laughs> Richard Sarah is like, uh, I don't even know. He would be the greatest uncle because he's <laughs> oh, so manly. In terms, like you would never expect that this this uh, this person who's like internationally acclaimed gallery artist, he's kind of in that same uh, cut from the same cloth as like a Picasso type of guy, right? Mm -hmm. He's he's got like this this hard face and this tan and um, these big broad hands, and his work is is made by shipbuilders in Germany, and they're they're taking tons of steel and twisting it into these arcs, and then he needs like a crew of, of people to install it, and special museums are built specifically for the, the Richard Serra piece. And uh, he, he explains it all very um, like an engineer would, you know? And he has a, a really um, healthy working class uh, appreciation of of artwork where he basically says that you know art isn't inherently useless and that's the point it's it's supposed to be an experiment with with form and experience and uh, abstraction that um you would hope leads to connections new connections to form in your brain that you don't quite understand what they're for now mm -hmm. but uh later on it might be useful it's almost like the way that CERN is building that giant Hadron Collider and they're spending billions of dollars on it to get the Higgs boson. And they're like, why do you want the Higgs boson so bad? And they're like, because we need to find it. And once we find it, we'll figure out what to do with it. You know, that kind of, that kind of scientific approach. Mm -hmm. uh, Richard Serra just, you know, he's, he's talking about form and he, he's, uh, he's, he's saying, uh, you know, this is the, the very first time that this, this structure has ever been made. You know, he's talking about like combining ellipses and arcs in a way that he can patent because it's never been sculpted in real life. And I was like, 
Are you sure, Richard? <laughs> and all every every person who's ever made a, a paperclip, but he he s- seems to swear by it that he's the first person to ever sculpt certain arcs and stuff out of out of steel. Yeah, and um, there's undeniably something uh, something crazy moving about his his stuff. You know, uh, it's so simple, like you like you said with uh, the Philip Glass, mm-hmm. and uh, he's it's definitely not overworked. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, those things are amazing. I mean, I think what's inspiring about pieces like uh, that or the Richard Serra's work, and I've only seen the at LACMA in Los Angeles. They have these huge, a couple huge sculptures mm-hmm. where you sort of walk through, and it's like iron. And what's inspiring to me is not so much the like sculpture itself. It's yeah. not so much looking at it. It's that someone had the gall to fucking go. This is my idea. And it's going to be 40 tons. And it's going <laughs> to And cost, you're going to figure yeah. out how to, you know, whatever. Mm. But this is it. And there's something in, like, someone putting that out there that changes your perspective of mm-hmm. what beauty is and what art is. And mm. all of that is, like, good. And the crazy psychedelic part of it is that um, you you get... He talks about how these massive steel sculptures have a buoyancy to them. And it's like, yeah, I totally see that. It looks like uh, it's so counterintuitive that you look at this thing that kind of looks like it, it floated down from a cloud mm-hmm. and you touch it and it's like 40 tons of steel that no one could ever push over. Yeah. But it's like arcing in a certain way. And, and so he, you know, he's one of my favorite artists. Like he's definitely the, the prototypical um, person uh, that's achieved the kind of um, simplicity that we were, were describing and that we hope to kind of get at one of these days yeah while we keep on uh, experimenting which also mm-hmm. has something to do i think like relating back to andy goldsworthy i think those yeah. sculptures also there's something like very um earthy about it like mm-hmm. the look of it or the way these like the metal like looks or there's something really down yeah. to earthy as opposed to someone like Jeff Koons who's art like I really think is fantastic. He's a funny guy. He is a really funny guy. Yeah, there was a funny. great art. I don't know if you saw that article in New York magazine or was it Vanity Fair? It was Vanity Fair. I think this past month's Vanity Fair of like um, just sort of giving a little bit of a profile about his life and how he recovered. I guess he like up until 2000, had was involved in a relationship with this woman. He's dating a porn star, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What's her name? It's it's not just a porn star. She has a name, oh. Elena or something. Like, okay, she has a name, but I didn't read it fully. I just skipped <laughs> over that part. Um, anyway, but the sculptures that they did together, which, in spite of being like very um, bold there's like a real beauty in them. So that's one thing, but then that sort of like falls apart and the way he recovers and, and this profile is very interesting because, you know, like before you even read the article, you see a picture of him with his like four fucking toddler aged kids and his mm-hmm. pretty young wife. And or I, I don't know if she's, if she looked young. I don't, she might not be, I don't know, <laughs> but looked very wholesome. Yeah. And that anything that I've seen of Jeff Koons has all been pretty recent, like the yeah. balloon, dogs or the like blow up uh animals in the fence mm-hmm. the chain link fence that kind of stuff which i think is so great not because it's necessarily a beautiful object but it makes me see things differently yeah but that you see that and then you see this like reading about what his work was before 
it's so fascinating and mm. the idea of creativity and and how someone can express something and what its value is or what yeah. its meaning is if it has meaning or if its meaning is like anything that you can really like put a pin in or anything like that um I think it's so great to think about that and going back to like creative process, which I think is the big struggle is like thinking about, is this a value? Is this, mm. and I think as a young person trying to do something good, you're feeling like the only value is innovation. Mm. Like that, that the only thing that I could do was make something totally new instead mm -hmm. of doing something that's been done before, but yeah. doing it in my own way or like contributing in its own way. And I think that takes a long time yeah, to sort of and accept. Yeah, being um, accepting the idea that that's, that's merit in itself. Like there's so many um, young artists or, or people who would like to make art that completely um, sabotage themselves by uh, having ideas about, uh, you know, who do I think I am like making something or having, you know, people criticize their work and saying like, this isn't very good. You should probably just quit. And uh, you go, you, has I, anyone I really, said that to you? No, no, no. But I or I, anybody like who is you the can, asshole? You can, who you said. can subtle pressure. I mean, if you, especially if you have siblings and stuff that are in more legitimate career fields, right? Quit, like I guess. where the I guess uh, so. it's it's so much easier to make a lot of money in a lot of different other avenues. Like you can be a plumber and make two hundred thousand dollars a year. Mm -hmm. um, but what I was going to say is. Um, I really love this Kurt Vonnegut quote where uh, he's he's doing a commencement speech and he said um, he said people often ask me for uh, art exercises. He's like, here's an art exercise for everyone in this graduating class. He's like, go home and get out a pencil and paper and write yourself a poem. Be very uh, economical with your words. Really. Um, choose them carefully and try to write something very true and something personal to you that you find moving. And then once you've edited it and once you've thought about it and meditated on it, and once you're happy with the poem, once it's really something you believe in, crumble it up and throw it in the garbage. He's like, because we've been taught by the industrial system that art is an occupation when really it's supposed to be about making your soul grow and you can make artwork that has no financial value and no one ever sees and it's still valuable because it's a, a big part about being a human and like um making the world a more beautiful place i mean for christ's sakes like you can fill the world full of lawyers and doctors and stuff and we'll be healthy and we'll have a, a justice system that is functional but uh, it, the world won't be any fun to, to be in. Like the artwork is what makes the, the place so much uh, uh, more interesting to, to be in. But what about for the people that are doctors and lawyers, um, you know, that may not go to museums or give a shit about music apart from like top radio, mm -hmm. top 40 radio or something like that? Like what about the people who aren't necessarily? I think they'd be happier if they did. Maybe. I think that it, uh, it, it's... It, it, and I also think that like people who spend their time doing nothing but art also would gain from taking up jogging or you're right. playing hockey or whatever. It's all part of the, the human experience. You know, yeah. try a little bit of everything. Yeah. Makes it more fun to, to be here. I guess I just sort of uh, get a little bit curious about like, you know, when I when I talk about 
art with someone it's usually with some it's like it feels like a little bit like preaching to the choir it feels a little mm -hmm. bit like yeah it's easy to talk about art you know and that it benefits the whole but then maybe i have like a really limited scope of like the effect of art overall mm -hmm. um and and how it affects people maybe not necessarily uh with people that go to art galleries necessarily but uh public art that people see on the street you mm -hmm. know or um and i don't mean street art necessarily you know if there are installations of something out there um a friend of mine in los angeles did uh has this uh installation called Mophones where mm. she she made and it was part like commercial where she was selling objects but she also wanted to make an art installation about it and it was basically like attaching an object to an iPhone case mm. and then that's like you're holding on to like you know those waxy grapes or whatever but it's that's like how you hold your phone <laughs> but she also you attach she, an iphone to one of the the standard receivers from yeah, the 1980s exactly. phone that's know. exactly what she did that's i think that was the initial <laughs> thing and it's great and um and she was able to like get distribution through urban outfitters like she really took that far i it. think yeah. yeah this idea but, has legs but on top of that, she was working on uh, a thing where, um, and she did an ex a little installation at a bar where it's like a phone booth and where you called this number on this MoPhone and you said something meaningful. You said something mm -hmm. to someone, like a, you sent a message to someone. Yeah. And um, and a lot of them were were, I mean, all of them were really touching things because there were things that you didn't have the courage to say or you didn't have the opera maybe it wasn't about courage you just didn't have the opportunity mm -hmm. to talk to someone that you wanted to talk to in that certain way and there was uh one in particular that was really touching and i think it was a way in 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 connecting people that may not be interested in uh, uh like abstract art or something that's not like a very accessible thing something yeah. that takes a little bit of energy to try and process or understand it's not easily understood but uh this it, so she played them and uh this woman picks up the phone and it's like hi mom you know you died couple years ago I want to say that like I really miss you and I love you and I think about you a lot I don't even really believe that you're in like I don't believe you're anywhere so I don't know why I'm leaving you this message yeah. but I love you that's mm. it that's all I have to say and there that's was she's thinking yeah exactly yeah, it was like cool. even though she didn't maybe like believe that this message would go anywhere there you know she's not like talking to her mother in heaven or something like that there's something about this piece of art that like expressed yeah. something, mm -hmm. even if there's no belief behind it, you mm -hmm. know? And I think that, that that's something where it's like, ah, that that's it. That's, yeah. a, that's a, to me, that's a really original, sincere idea that comes through something that's commercial yeah. and a little bit abstract. And that's a brilliant, brilliant thing. And, you know, like I, I feel like those are the moments that you're sort of striving for is like, that individual connection that maybe no one maybe no i think other people were affected by it but yeah. it seemed like that was where you could really interact with this piece of art mm -hmm. and it's beautiful and and going further on that line uh a friend of mine re recommended this book called the architecture of happiness it was written mm -hmm. by this did you, know, did you know that book it's called uh the architecture of happiness but it's written by this guy named, named ellen de bottom mm -hmm. i may be pronouncing that wrong 
And when I first started reading that, I was a little bit distracted. I wasn't really into it. And it seemed like kind of flowery language about buildings. <laughs> <laughs> and on the plane over here, I had a chance to like read it uninterrupted. Yeah. And it really is this great, like there are so many brilliant ideas and brilliant observations about the strength of design and beauty in things that you never really notice mm -hmm. and how your uh, and and the like that that architecture essentially is unnecessary there's not really it's not really necessary to make a building look great yeah in order to keep somebody's uh, hair covered. dry or yeah, yeah. to keep the rain off your head yeah you know, exactly. there's no functional purpose for beauty except that you make a building ugly enough and no one will want to live in it <laughs> but that's not true uh, oh well some people will be forced to live in it but they would always prefer to leave right they, right right definitely find a place definitely. That is cheaper. um but it was a great book in sort of like talking about the value of art and mm -hmm. i think there are definitely moments when you know i'll i'll think about other prof profession professions that i could have gone into maybe not i don't know if i'd be capable of doing anything else but that would have been some like concrete use to someone else and I remember expressing this to a friend and she was like no music like that just keep maybe you don't like maybe you don't know how it works speak maybe. to more teenagers man they'll tell you that music's the only thing that makes sense in their fucked up life Shit. and for me too you know yeah. I mean there are really days where the the best part of my day is escaping in this like three and a half four minute thing but still like when you're not in it you like forget or you just sort of take it for granted that it really is this like soul nourishing power but this book was so great in in relating that to like the visual sense and yeah. how the build and, and then you think about the buildings that that really uh have, are are very different and the courage that i remember when the crystal was built the, the um rom. the rom crystal there was so much negative <laughs> i feel like I, and i don't i'm not from articles or anything but just yeah, from yeah, people yeah. who were sort of like what is this bullshit sticking yeah. out onto and then on that that sentiment expressed in a lot of different levels of intellectual argument you know right. at, you know on the one hand you could have a kind of a philistine type of idea where it's like you know what a waste of money that's totally impractical and then on the more academic side it's like well is it gonna leak is, are the specimens <laughs> right. gonna get damaged by it you know it's nice but when you walk around on the inside there's a lot of wasted negative space in here and <laughs> You know, in terms of of making a, a, an extension to a museum, one of the reasons why you make an extension to a museum is so you have more room for more <laughs> specimens. You kind of you, it, there's a lot of people who made a really persuasive argument to me that it was spectacle, and mm -hmm. I get that. I'm like, yeah, it, it it is spectacle. There's not a lot. There's a lot of practical. But damn aspects. right, it's spectacle. Mm -hmm. It looks fucking incredible. Yeah. You everybody notices what the hell is that thing whether it's practical or whether it's even pretty yeah. and even that is like what the fuck do you know if it's not mm -hmm. pretty or not it's it's something that you notice and i think it's it's one of those things where maybe at first you sort of like you're so quick to judge it as like bullshit but then after a while it's actually fucking beautiful yeah it's and cool great. i love the i love the lines in it i love the uh, the silhouette of it um, I think a lot of people were disappointed that it wasn't made out of glass. Why? I think it looks a little heavy. The uh, that lip skinned um, 
metal is the the facade of it kind of is a little depressing <laughs> i don't know there's something about that heavy heavy metal and the 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 funny windows the little narrow windows that have no right use and people were like if i designed it <laughs> i would definitely know how to solve whatever problem they had to go yeah 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 obviously there's a lot of architectural hurdles that they had to get over but um I prefer what uh, Frank Gehry did with the AGO. Oh, that's, yeah, it's yeah, very striking. Curved, it's very beautiful. Because he, he has a sculptural element on the, the facade, but it's all done in glass, so it lets a lot of light in it and it makes like amazing atrium. It seems like it's a atrium. totally different yeah. beast, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, there's I mean, nothing maybe, in or maybe, or maybe architects They're would... both done by celebrity architects, and they were both um, But that's extensions. the thing that I think is so brilliant about it. It's like, good, I'm mm -hmm. glad they're totally fucking different things, and I'm glad one is considered you know, not as good as the other one or whatever. Like, sure. good, more of that, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, in the future, they might tear down the ROM crystal and do what? something else. Is there then... a question of that? Uh, I, it's already been proposed, and the oh thing is only, God. like, what, eight years old or something? Oh, that's so, so heartbreaking. Shit. Yeah, but they might build something even cooler. You know, who knows? If, you, yeah, if you're but... going into the spectacle um, <laughs> game, then... Yeah, but this was, I have so many yeah buts for that. I won't even start. <laughs> I was going to uh, riff off of um, what you were talking about your friend with the phone messages. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Her name is in, Marissa Maltz. Were you in She's town that, that Nuit Blanche year that we did the secular confession booth? No. No. Oh, God. Did you already do it? Yeah, 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 that was in uh, 2000. I meant like, did you already, you already took the concept. Five or whatever. No, no, no. It's not the same concept. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a confession booth. And we set it up in a church and we had um, a, a silk barrier where um, you could go and confess to a person that was just a silhouette. You know, you ha we had a, a group of people that had volunteered to hear confessions and we had... No shit, open... that is not a hard thing to volunteer for. Mm -hmm. And they were anonymous and um, we brought in uh, random people from off the street and they got to go into the booth for two minutes and do whatever they want. You and didn't record it. No, we didn't record it. It's a bad idea. That was the that was the one of the the paranoias. Everybody coming off, they were like, Are "You sure you're not recording this? Are you sure you're not recording this? <laughs> this sounds like a setup." Do you you're think people to, were honest? Is this dragnet? Are you gonna are you gonna arrest me if I say anything incriminating? <laughs> what do you think the top two confessions of oh. drunken art? nerds in in toronto nui blanche were you think the majority i guess the majority of people that participate in nui blanche in the right? second year around nui blanche it hadn't gone mainstream enough it was mostly art kids oh yeah, um god i feel like one of if you were being like super bare bones confessional maybe this is not good for like a public space but it mm -hmm. would be something like uh what you masturbate to <laughs> like something like that you know what i mean juicy yeah, like the idea of having someone to sort of be like, interesting. Yeah, that you—that's how you feel. Number one, I hate all of my friends, oh. but I can't do anything about it. Isn't oh, that God. shocking? Um, that was number one. Eh? Number one, God. number one confession. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess that would be depressing. Depressing and awful. And for our there's kids, a lot of people though, who fuck are... those guys. <laughs> bunch of assholes 
Yeah, well, I no shouldn't shit. have pref- I shouldn't have prefaced it that way. I I think it makes much more sense if you just think of the average person. That no, it makes more sense. Doesn't if you know think about a lot students. of cool people and musicians too. If you think about it as as a, a group of art kids, it can just seem um, like that person's being a a dick, and they they want cooler. Friends. Well, all their friends are being dicks too, yeah. apparently. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what was number two? Nothing about masturbation, as it turns out. That would be my. It wasn't, it wasn't I guess. about masturbation. I actually forget number two, but oh. you know, I've told that story so many times that now I've taken it for granted. And you don't remember number spot. two? If if I told it again, like do you remember? Che- yeah, maybe it's no, like it wasn't cheating. It I would think cheating. it would be something about like lying to someone or something. There was there was quite a few people that were that were saying that they were sleeping around or whatever, yeah. but that wasn't the um, that w- it wasn't part of the top two that like stuck into my head. Yeah. The most uh, eccentric one was a guy sat down and uh, he claimed to be an interdimensional <laughs> time traveler. Hold on, hold on. You're saying like the guy like these people were like I swear like you, we haven't taped. We haven't taped it. These people yeah. like, and then a couple of years later, you're like, you're one on the worst one. Ah, <laughs> well, that's not the same thing. Like you can't hear their voice. He doesn't know. Yeah. He will never hear this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the one guy claimed to be an interdimensional time traveler and he was like, I haven't, you know, I haven't blown my cover yet. I've, I've been kind of getting away with it for, for a couple of years now, but wow, you know, that's I, a plot from my is... favorite movie. I don't know if I recommended that movie to you. It was the movie that made me want to be a film composer, or not made me want to be a film composer. It was the film that made me realize I could be a film composer. Mm. Yeah, it was a possibility. Yeah, mm. and it was called Happy Accidents. It was with Marissa Tor- Tomei and Vincent D'Onofrio. And Vincent D'Onofrio was a time, a time traveler. traveler. Yeah, he landed back in New York in 2001 or something like that, 2000, 2001. What a year to, to uh, visit New York. I can't remember. Is it, is it based around like September 11th? No, 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 not at all. Not at all. It was um, um, the compo- the film composer was John Lurie's brother, Evan mm-hmm. Lurie. Who, as far as I know, and I thought his score was so fucking brilliant. And as far as I know, hasn't done anything but the Backyardigans. You know, a kid's show? Which I haven't seen, but I'm sure the score is really brilliant for that. Score is good. Animation's really good. Toronto is excellent at funneling a huge amount of animation talent into making CBC kids television shows. Is Backyardigans? I thought Backyardigans was an American production. Or it might be an American production. I don't know. But it's Um, made by Chorus, I think. Chorus. I have a funny story about chorus. So they the that's the end of the story. It was the time traveler. Oh, he was. A, it was like it was just, and it's the kind of movie where I would watch it over and over and over mm-hmm. again. And I recommend it to everyone. I recommended it to Sean Clark, our friend, who's a big film buff and has a great DVD collection. And he was like, eh. and everyone I recommended <laughs> to, they're like, yeah, it's a nice movie. No, okay, but I'm kind of like, no, it's life changing. Like it's brilliant in every <laughs> single way. I had a, I was, a, I was doing a video with uh, my friend Mike Juno for uh, Rock Plaza Central, and uh, the lead singer of that band, Chris Eaton, is a film buff too. And uh, we were like, you know, we were talking about movies, and Chris was. He it was kind of one of those situations, you know how we're like where you're you might have like indie taste, 
and then you meet somebody who has like even more indie taste <laughs> right. it becomes like an arms race between like saying oh i'm really in the adaptation it's like oh yeah that's kind of mainstream for me i'm more into this this french movie that came. So anyways, he was he was recommending over now he's like i saw this movie the prisoner with steve martin it was the greatest movie i've ever seen i'm like really what's what's it about he's like steve martin he's playing completely against tape type he's 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 this uh manipulative um sociopathic uh trickster guy and it's it's this intrigue and there's you know people trying to get away with the loot and backstabbing and stuff i watched the movie and i was just like it's a piece of shit (laughs) (laughs) i totally didn't get it and it's exactly what you're saying like some some things some people will find really moving and other people find it, it they don't get tap caught up in the spell of the movie there's something about it that just turns them off yeah and I, yeah. who doesn't like Vincent D'Onofrio? <laughs> who, as like a rom, com kind of com, as a rom romedy, as a guy like a guy that you could fall in fucking love with. Just a just a man, a perfect man. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. So you had the, the confessional booth. Oh. I think we. <laughs> Well, yeah, that we we set up a, the the church and stuff, and it was it was popular. I it would make an excellent phone app. I think that if anybody wants to steal that idea, having an anonymous channel that you could leave voice messages on, yeah, and then having it work the opposite way, where you could listen to it totally. other people's things, that well, would be a brilliant. Which I think what she was trying to do, or what she will do eventually, is like make it a wider thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think for our sort of circle. There was just like not enough, like it just didn't get out enough for there to be a lot of people. But I remember being like, I've got to do that because I definitely have a message for someone that I would never have the courage to say. Mm -hmm. Like I have that. And I just could not get up the courage to call this line and say it. You know what I mean? And I, I didn't mind that it wasn't anonymous. I didn't mind that it would play it like an art installation later. And they had your name associated with it? I think you could be oh, anonymous okay. or you could not, or maybe she, maybe the names weren't, I can't remember. Yeah. But even if my name was on it, cause I feel like, you know, that would be my passive way of like trying to connect to that, you know, that person that I would want to say something to, but it would be too awkward in real yeah. life to actually like do it. I think it for me or... it would, it would uh, encourage me to leave something inspirational. Oh really? <laughs> to say something inspirational, my name's going to be on it. Uh, <laughs> What's your inspirational thing? Um, inspiration is for amateurs. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> it, the uh, the whole having your name associated or not associated reminds me of that great Curb Your Enthusiasm episode. Did you ever see the one where they're giving donations to the museum? And uh, <laughs> oh. Larry David is is uh, is happy. He gave a donation, and they're they're going to put his name on the wall. And then he runs into uh, the Democratic leader of the House, and she's. Uh, she's flabbergasted that uh, Ted Danson has put in money, but he's anonymous. And they're all looking up the wall, and there's like all these different donors, and at the bottom is anonymous, and all they can they can talk about is like who's anonymous. Oh, it's Ted Danson. He's too <laughs> humble to let everybody know that he donated the music. He did it for the right reasons, not for the glory. Right. It's like uh, the other episode with the tip coordination. Mm-hmm. With George Costanza being like, 
What did he do? Like a fifty percent tip? Where Larry was like, "I do fifteen or twenty. What was the tip?" And George Costanza, or Jason Alexander, wouldn't tell him how much, and yeah. he just like it drove him crazy. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I definitely do that when we go out to dinner. When yeah. I go out to dinner with friends, I'm constantly like a little bit paranoid that I'm under tipping, and I think. I mean, I shouldn't admit this. Not like any waiters or waitresses might listen this far into the podcast. It's like just talking. <laughs> There's a lot of servers in this town. <laughs> but but there are times when I feel like, you know, whatever, you're just worried about like how much money you've already spent on the meal and maybe whatever that I'm always like, let's make sure we do. Like, what are we doing? 15 or is it 18 or is it 20? Like, can we all be on the same page? You don't want to be the one that's cheaping out. <laughs> I don't want to be the one that's cheaping out. But uh, yeah, it's like a super, it's, there's real anxiety in like, who is giving one? Like, can I just be on the same page with that? Because <laughs> even though I can, maybe can't afford it, like I just want to like not be thought of as cheap. Yeah. Yeah, it's a concern. I mean, it's fucking, my friend Steve has been living in China for the last uh Oh, they don't tip over there, do they? They don't, tip, they don't tip over there. God bless them. And uh, where else? Was it Jessica Gordon that was saying they don't tip in uh, England or something? In Vancouver. At bars, they don't tip. In England. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Damn blokes. Damn blokes <laughs> and their cheapness. <laughs> Although, like, I don't know. I, I, uh, I, maybe, maybe bartenders are really like, thanks for that dollar mm. means a lot. Or if they're like, oh, yeah, I've, care. I've had that before where the person's like, fuck you for not tipping me enough. Oh, like really? on a drink or something. It's like a toonie is not enough at this. For a drink, bar. you tip a toonie for a drink. If I thought it was a dollar certain, a drink. If you go to certain bars, you do the, oh. like the Black Hoof, like cocktail place, uh, if you're paying like $50 for a martini or whatever, they expect what? you to. Fifty dollars for really a martini. Throw down. Show me a fifty dollar martini, and I will Dude, show you. Okay, so you got to mix it with absinthe. There's got to be truffle oil in it. <laughs> it's plague. completely not worth the money. But sometimes you're, you know, on MDMA and you're wandering around the city in a, a haze, <laughs> and you're with like ballin' friends that are from rich families or whatever, and they they start to show off, and it happens like twice in your life, and. You you remember paying that fifty dollars for a long long time. Fifty dollars. I actually remember- got treated to the fifty dollar martini. So. Oh that. really? You sincerely, you're not. There's no hyperbole in this. You had a fifty dollar martini. Yeah, I think it was fifty dollars. It may have been twenty five, no. but like no, it, it was there's, fifteen. There's <laughs> no no no. I said fifty or twenty five. They're kind of synonymous in my head. Maybe it was two for fifty dollars. <laughs> I don't know, but that's it's, a crazy it's amount of money for like an ounce of liquid. Mm-hmm. But everything with the the black hoof is crazy. Like, what that. is the black hoof? I don't even. It's a, it's is that like a charcuterie? A, mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's. You still know, the I same. know that because there's one in L.A. Oh, it's also, have they expanded? I, I, it's probably not even the same thing. It might be. But when you have a restaurant called the Black Hoof, it's all pork. Totally. Or yeah. and they also have whatever. weird things like ostrich and. Yeah. Alligator sausage and, you know, little dishes of foie gras. And, yeah. Um, I have noticed that, like, coming back to Canada, mm-hmm. it seems so much more expensive mm-hmm. than the U.S. I went to the grocery store today and I could not find a box of cereal for under $4. That's mm-hmm. highway robbery. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is so expensive about? Yeah. That's a, what else have you noticed about your, your new L.A. home? That's uh, that's different. Like I went to Pasadena once uh-huh. uh, to go to Coachella 
And um, I thought it was exactly the same as Toronto, except it had pine. Uh, you went palm to Pasadena trees. or Palm Springs? Pasadena, California. Oh, I think Coachella's in Palm Springs. It's like they must be close to one another. It was like an hour long <laughs> drive to get to. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, okay, that makes sense. What is it? Got it. Uh, Indio. Indio, California. And then we had a friend whose relatives were in Pasadena. Pasadena's so lovely. Sleeping yeah, yeah, it's really nice. It's, 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 it was, it was, uh, I mean, culturally, like the people all had the same fashion, listen all the same music, the same stores. Uh, it was Toronto with palm trees and little hills all over the place. Yeah. With little yappy dogs. And, Lots of dogs. Um, just like giant roses the size of footballs. And everybody's just got mangoes and avocados just growing like yeah, weeds in their yard. They pave the streets with mangoes. And the weather's nice enough that the poor people just, you know, keep their windows and their doors open and let the wind blow through. And it's it seems like paradise. <laughs> the windows and doors of the tents they sleep under freeways with. <laughs> no, 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 not like that. I mean, um, the kind of like working class families, like if you're yeah. um, a Mexican family or a... A Portuguese family or a or not a Filipino family. You're like kind of associating poor people with the kind the the the, the uh, low income Pasadena neighborhoods that we were staying in for the, the time we were there. Huh. They have um, a kind of low rise, um, the kind of like Mackenzie King houses that we have here, where are like three bedrooms or right. whatever, and like yeah. one story. They have those all over Pasadena. Yeah, and it's. It's funny because everything else is so tropical. Like they have all these fruits and vegetables just sprouting out everywhere. And yeah. you can have like kind of a nice lifestyle, even if you don't make a lot of money. They might disagree with you. Yeah. Well, I mean, comparatively, like uh, it, it's it's t harder to be it, the weather with the weather really bad in Toronto. If you're um, in the same kind of level of poverty. Yeah. Like it sucks in the wintertime. Right. Like yeah. That's true. I would argue that it like sucks anywhere. I feel like Los Angeles, I, you really are like there's you see a lot of fucking down and out people mm -hmm. everywhere. I mean, they're on like every street corner. Um, so I've noticed that I've definitely like come back and been like, I'm seeing a lot less homeless people although mm. maybe you feel like you look around and you see a lot of homeless people no but i noticed the same thing when i went to new york i was like i don't know if i could ever live here because there's a weird kind of fascist thing that's do you think there's a lot of homeless people in new york? i don't think in, i've ever more in in, um, in america where because they don't have national health care mm. there's people that are clearly disabled from preventable things that they had when they were a kid oh, yeah. and now they've become like you know these wandering disabled people that are you know s screaming on the subway and stuff and people because new yorkers are so used to living with that divide the people who are more fortunate have just have this iron curtain that goes up where they can completely block out all of the misery <laughs> that's, right. that's happening and i you know i don't want to be part of that <laughs> yeah you don't like nobody i'm sure the people with the iron curtain don't want to be part of that yeah. but but there there is a moment like a, when i'm driving in los angeles you'll see people like roll down their windows and like hand change the, the other night someone and i were driving and someone like rolled down their window and gave like a bag of something leftover food to this guy that was on the side of the street mm-hmm and I sort of remarked like, oh great, thanks for your fucking leftovers. I'm like mm. living on the street, I need some fucking money. And you know, by the time we like got up to where the guy was sitting, he was like already like eating half of the thing out of the thing. Like, you know, just 
even though you, there are maybe people who like have this iron curtain you know once in a while you see someone who like is just like generous in a way mm -hmm. and that kind of inspires you to be like hey, you know what maybe i should chill out a little bit yeah and like just maybe little like i maybe i can't do anything maybe a little thing helps i don't know i yeah. think i fall more on the side of like they're gonna figure it out mm. and i you know and i'm not so much like you're gonna figure it out but more on a like i don't know what that situation is yeah and i don't want to put myself in danger and i don't want to put my yeah. friends in danger and i don't know what the fuck is going on there and i think it's this fear but also you're sort of like it's this dual thing of you know this is a person who's like down and out enough to be on the street and it's a really like uh, it's a really tough thing to to think about and it's probably easier to ignore it and yeah. just drive past and assume there's going to be someone else mm -hmm. behind you that's going to like give them their leftovers yeah. or whatever most of my my feelings about it are, are completely like from a, a social engineering point of view where i just like when i see um someone who has clearly a mental illness i'm like why are we not taking care of these these kids that are going to grow up yeah into these adults that are clearly sick yeah god you know and i i just kind of see it as like a, a failure the the thing that i believe is that like the the human brain is the most powerful and most precious um resource that we have it's it's um more delicate it's more valuable than any of the fictional institutions that we go on and and uh, proclaim to be important and i feel like every time you have somebody sorry to interrupt fictional institutions you know, like mm -hmm. going on about how Goldman Sachs, we have to save Goldman Sachs. It's too big to fail. And, you know, we've got to put all these billions of dollars into propping up the company. And oh, you think people buy things. that? Do you think people really like think that that matters? Or do you well, think regardless, that's the narrative. Uh -huh. And all I'm saying is that um, every time I see somebody who is um, in a bad place because of all sorts of fucked up things that might have happened when they were a kid, mm -hmm. I go like, what a waste. You know, how many Albert Einsteins or how many brilliant people that could have changed everything in our practical lives? How many of those people were wasted? How many of those brains were wasted because of a lack of something like their parents couldn't send them to the dentist? Yeah. And then that led to like impacted molars and then that led to uh, oral disease and then they had to get all their teeth pulled out. And then, you know, a snowball effect that happens where these little basic problems that we all could have solved very cheaply yeah. and benefited from having like another functioning, um, successful person as part of our human team. That's right. I mean, society. you could say the same about another like Jeffrey Dahmer or mm. Ted Bundy or something like that. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, if you're, if you're <laughs> talking about like get, scales of, 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 um, of like these, these, sickness, uh, I guess what, I, what I'm talking about is, uh, like the idea of, you know, watching Cosmos, the mm -hmm. um, the the new one with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Mm -hmm. You know, I think something that really struck me about that is the ra like the randomness of where we are. And granted, I haven't finished the season. I'd really like to, but the first 
five or six episodes presented our lives in such a random like it's a fucking miracle that mm -hmm. we are here and that we've developed the way we have and all of it is not necessarily like a spiritual design it's because something connected with something else and then developed out of over thousands and thousands of years and in that way it kind of takes away any kind of moral responsibility yeah but i i think that um <laughs> I know because I know I'm sounding like a heartless asshole. But the idea of like, oh, if all of this sort of happens by like these scientific connections and chemical yeah. reactions and developments of all that kind of. I can make an argument against this. <laughs> okay. I don't know if I want to hear it. I've thought, I've thought about this a lot. Because, okay. Because um, so there's. A group. If you if you watch, you know, something like Wolf of Wall Street, or if you watch the Wall Street movie with Michael Douglas, mm -hmm. and you listen to Republican fuckheads like Mick Romney or whatever, no judgment. Um, the um, you can get a worldview that is is they call it Darwinian. Where uh -huh. It's like this idea that it's survival of the fittest, and that the reason that you know humanity has risen up from microorganisms and out of the muck is that the big cell eats the little cell and the the chain reaction goes around and around over billions of years until you've got these uber menches these these superhumans that have mastered the world and destroyed nature and now are moving on to genetic engineering and terraforming and all sorts of other godlike things and that's one worldview what bio from the the right you're you're saying that's what they think of it doesn't have to be a right left thing it can just be a human uh, philosophy like the way we see the world okay what modern biology is starting to discover now is that d the the classic idea of darwinism is incorrect like it actually isn't survival of the fittest and symbiosis is just as important as being um able to like uh, survive like being able to adapt to your surroundings and being able to be a beneficial organism to um, the the network and the web of organisms around you is just mm -hmm. as important as being the strong yeah. it's or rather it's it's more it's it's the web it's not the the survival of the fittest the survival of the fittest was a a misunderstanding or a, a simplistic view of of how that evolution works mm -hmm. And once I think you you see the world that way, then suddenly things like socialism and um, trying to work on your ability to make others strong and and educated and um, talented and fulfilled and how that benefits you in a lot of like tertiary ways, it becomes more obvious. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm not, I like maybe in uh episode six of whatever they get to that or whatever i'm totally not meaning to say that mm -hmm. cosmos makes a case for like that darwinian kind of thing yeah i'm i'm more sort of getting at the um i feel like i i was raised in a way to think of morals being the most important thing like mm -hmm. being a good person and what is good right. and what is not good mm -hmm. and then doing the good thing yeah like that that was the most important thing the funny thing is the morals came before the religion though 
there's there's a the golden rule has been around since caveman times where like you do unto others as you would have them do unto you Mm -hmm. it was only in the era of like um i don't know how in the era of more civilized uh hierarchy like as soon as you started to get kings as soon as cities got big enough to have a king then you started to get a lot of the morals put through a filter of hierarchy whereas where it says we do um, nice things for each other in order to avoid punishment from the leader mm-hmm. or in order to aggrandize the leader or in order to um, get respect from the leader. Oh, what his, you know what I'm his, saying? Yeah, like, so, history, like, why are we... Uh, just... monotheism and that idea that there's a God above you that is dictating the law and if you do good, he'll reward you and if you do bad, he'll punish you. That was a concept that lined and developed alongside having kings. And it's not a coincidence that these kings came in and they promoted the idea that they have hierarchy because that's the state of the universe. Yeah. Like there's the God, then there's the king, then there's all of you serfs and the lesson of the universe is that you follow the rules and you get rewarded and you break the rules and get punished. (laughs) And and what my feeling is that if you go back to caveman times or if you hung out with hunter gatherer societies, they would have an idea of justice and freedom and um, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. That can be, if you wanted it to be separate from theism and it would be just like, um, Thomas Jefferson wrote, it's a, it's um, self-evident. It's a self-evident as triangle, you know, like mm-hmm. there it's self-evident that people are born free and that you shouldn't be able to take somebody's life, liberty, property, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. That's a universal that's not debatable. It doesn't need to be passed down from a creator. It's, it's something that you're the born right as soon as you are able to be on your own. Cool. I think, uh, yeah, uh, I think what I was talking about, I'm, and I don't mean to say that I was raised in a religious home because I wasn't, but um, but what I mean about like, um, fuck, I don't even know if I remember the original fucking point, but it was, some, I guess we're, it was something to do with. Is it because like we evolved out of nothing? Oh, yeah, it yeah, makes yeah. everything meaningless, right? And no, no, but it doesn't. It doesn't make it meaningless. But there was something about the show, and I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Therefore, saying like you don't even have to worry about doing anything for anybody because it doesn't really matter. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. Because I think all of that has value. I'm just saying the perspective with which you view it as oh, not yeah, like yeah, yeah. this is good or this is bad. It's like. Eventually, the whole planet is going to be swallowed by a supernova. Nothing and, matters. And the universe is going to collapse. And... Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, like, there, there's something to, like, you, the, the fascinating thing about watching that program, you know, when he talks about the, like, cosmic calendar and how we're, like, four seconds away or, like, all of human existence is, like, four seconds away from where we are now. If the original cosmic calendar includes all of the time from the birth of the universe until this very moment, what would the cosmic calendar look like for the next 14 billion years? Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you see those series? Do you, oh, these are all familiar, familiar okay, concepts. Okay, cool. Like for- so all of that like gives me this just sort of different perspective on how important I am. Yeah. You know, and which isn't to say that Humbling. I'm... 
Yeah, which isn't to say that I'm not important or that I am important or anything. It's just, and and I've talked about this with a friend of mine who's a vegetarian. We had this discussion where we were like making dinner or something. And I think we were talking about like organic versus not organic or whatever. And I was just kind of like, but does it matter? Do you think like really? Because like everything's going to like, may, maybe the earth is, yeah, maybe we are destroying the earth. Maybe mm-hmm. all of that is us. And, mm-hmm. you know, and like me doing like changing the way, you know, and I know that this is pretty like a negative way to think, but I don't, I don't consider it an, a negative thing. And maybe this is me being like brainwashed or whatever, but I just kind of feel like, you know, just be, just be nice. Yeah. Just like not, it doesn't so really was matter. was your vegetarian friend uh, talking about? I think that you can get a lot of, of eating meat or whatever. Or well, I think, I think you can pesticide. become really anxious mm-hmm. if you think of like yourself as like, because I'm having a hamburger. Mm hmm people's homes are being flooded mm-hmm. on the coast mm-hmm. because of this hamburger. You know what or, help, might help you um, wrap your head around that? Yeah, can you help me? There's an idea like, um, y- you've heard that that saying, become the change you seek. Right, right, right. There's an idea among like Buddhists that we're all part of a super organism. And if you think of yourself as like what one neuron among like a giant hive brain, your decisions do matter. So every time but Alexis decides saying. to do something, I don't know if it does. All the other Alexises who are on the fence, they're going to do it too. Uh-huh. And then you have a, a broad, broad change as possible when all of us decide to do our little part. Right. And by not doing our part, we also reinforce the status quo. Like when we all make the decision to to keep going, going with the um, the flow, going with the. I guess my point is like. Yeah, don't then don't have tuna or don't have mm-hmm. you know meat or or recycle or make yeah. sure you like have solar panels on your roof. But like, chill the fuck out yeah. about like the impact of it and mm-hmm. the impact of my not deciding to do that. Oh sure, yeah, there is there is a lot of dwelling on on the negative. I mean, how much can you really do? You just you make the the right deso- decisions and you you keep uh, living your life. And you hope that enough people are going to make the same decision that broader stuff will change. And then you combine it with the cosmos idea that ultimately the earth will be swallowed by a red giant <laughs> star and it doesn't matter anyway. Or that the earth is going to be fine long after we're fucking finished. Yeah, but, but that doesn't matter. It's all about humans, baby. You don't you don't care if like the earth is going to be fine. Did you ever see Melancholia? Did you ever see Walking with Future Beasts where the fucking giant tortoises inherit the earth? And the squibbins. <laughs> that's that's YouTube gold. Man. Oh God, that's one I of my favorite stoner things to watch. We used to eat magic mushrooms and smoke pot and watch prehistoric beasts um, walking with dinosaurs and walking with future beasts as a way to appreciate the entire history of the what earth. What is that? Is that like an animation or like it's what a is that BBC from? series of documentaries with CGI puppets that tell you all about the dinosaurs and then the the pre-humans and All then right. cavemen and then things that are completely speculative, like what happens after humans. Yeah. All of the stuff that would happen on a hot earth, like yeah. what animals would live on hot earth and then what animals would live at the end of time. 
just before the, the the sun blows up, you know, it's it's fucking trippy, man. I think Cosmos did like this season. They did finish with some kind of like spectacular answer to those <laughs> questions, but I just got too busy. Yeah, I just couldn't finish it, but I will. The yeah. trippiest uh, the sci-fi idea for where we're headed. I like the idea that if we ever do find aliens, if they ever visit us, that they'll probably be robots. I, oh, you think like robots from another... Because you think about how unhospitable space is and how impractical it is for a bunch of squishy yeah. earth air breathers like us to like take our food in a little yeah. space pod and, and go off into the cosmos. What are we building? What is conducive? You can make a spaceship that is solar powered and has circuits on it and it can go off into space forever. You know, and, mm. and that's what's what's going to be able to leave the planet. I think oh. any kind of interstellar travel, I think, is going to be done by androids. It's not going to be done by people. Huh? Mm. Is it with intelligence, like artificial intelligence? Maybe, maybe a, a very base level um, mechanic to just be have that urge to explore and to harvest data, and that's all they know how to do. God. But I think that the, it's so impractical. We keep on thinking of. You saw that movie Gravity with Sandra Bullock. Yeah, I've heard of it. I didn't like Gravity, but one of one of the things that it did make you think about is, boy, is it great to be on Earth? Yeah, you, know, you can breathe. You can walk around. There's like food that you just it just sprouts out of the ground and 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 gives you. And you think about how ridiculous it is that we've gotten like this focus that we're gonna build these inhospitable space pods that are totally miserable to live in and we're going to shoot ourselves off to these other rocks and then you fucking get to Mars and there's nothing there. It's just <laughs> dirt and it's the radiation burns your skin off and uh, yeah. it's terrible. And then Google's making the practical joke. They're like, oh, we're going to send the first man colony to Mars. Like, who wants to volunteer to be the first ones to, on the one-way mission to Mars where you get to live in a biodome and eat like Is fucking... Is that a joke? No, I mean, it's on scientists' radar. They they want to do it in in the next hundred years. They want to try to do a, yeah. a mission, but it's a one-way ticket, right? Like, they yeah. got to be like the pioneers. Yeah, but there's something about that. I mean, I think in my, in my darkest times of, like, not knowing if I'm really good at what I do as a mm. musician or a composer, I think, oh, fucking take that ticket. <laughs> yeah, when you're done. <laughs> no problem. No, not even. Just, like, uh, just give me a reason to not like have to fail at this fucking thing that I'm trying to do. Mm. Well, that, I mean, that's in my darkest times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it, I think that like going back to what we were saying about the inherent importance of art, you can't really fail. The only time I think that like success and failure becomes a pragmatic kind of measurable thing is if you get way too tied up in the whole industrial yeah thinking where you're like trying to put dollar signs on stuff and yeah trying to wage i'm probably still very much like at the baby 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 steps beginning of understanding what it is that i do and whether i'm mm -hmm. good at it or whether and that'll never end like your curiosity God, is I bottomless i mean the, the curiosity is bottomless but I, I mean i feel like there i'm hoping there's a point where i can go forward with confidence that I'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I guess, I guess we do that now just by continuing on that you like have some kind of hope that like, it's just going to get better and yeah. you're just going to keep doing something. But that doesn't like you don't escape the moments where you really would like 
just start a new life on a whole nother planet, <laughs> you know, to, to just not have to face whether you could actually yeah. do it. Do you think if you were back in pioneer times, you would have been one of the ones brave enough to get on those rickety ships and go off to the new world and then... Or like the Mormons going across the country mm -hmm. with their carts and stuff. Uh, I think I would. I think I'm one of the... I mean, I think that, that that's in my personality. You made it to the West Coast. Made it from Winnipeg <laughs> to Toronto to Louisville to Toronto again and L.A. And, you know, after five years in L.A., you know, I'm back here because... I missed something new. I missed mm -hmm. something. So I think I kind of have a little bit of that personality of like, what is over there again? Yeah. Because maybe I'm, you know. The horizon. Yeah. yeah. My friends uh, have been living in China for the last six months. And um, it was, a, it was a, a bit of serendipity. Like he had been in a bit of, of a rut. And um, I always thought that... Um, he was suited to be kind of like a Hemingway type of person mm -hmm. in that like he was uh, imbued with a kind of a lust for novelty, I guess you'd say. Like he was a restaurateur and um, he was constantly curious and stimulated by meeting new people and trying to pick up the stories of exploring a new neighborhood or whatever. And after, you know, several years in Toronto, he had kind of felt like he had mastered the place and it was starting to bore him and he didn't know how to break out of the rut. And then he got the opportunity to um, get a buyout from his government job where they gave him like a cash payment of like $10,000 to just quit. And um, at the same time, his girlfriend wanted to move to China, to like live with her, to visit her family and to, you know, see what, learn business and stuff over there right because it, it might lead to something mm -hmm. with um the rise of china and stuff and uh so he got invited to come along with her and uh he, he was having cold feet but like when we talked about it i was like dude it'd be crazy not to go it's like this is totally up your alley don't be afraid at all you know we'll talk on facebook whatever you you won't even miss us after a month or whatever and he's been having this adventure over there where he's kind of absorbing this such a, a different culture and like seeing what uh, what an industri an, the early industrial city looks like, the rise of an industrial nation, like at its very beginning and the highs and lows in that and all the eccentricity of like the different culture. So what is he doing there? He's just, uh, he, I think he's teaching English and he's, um, and he loves it learning about like, uh, import export kind of businesses and, yeah. uh, you know what they do over there. And, um, yeah, he's been writing a blog. It's, it's, uh, it's neat to, to see the perspective. Um, he's going on about there's weird things like the Chinese are obsessed with red and gold. Like everything in the country is red and gold. In all of the stuff of, that you buy, all the consumer goods. Yeah. Apple released an iPhone in gold just because the Chinese love gold things. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That that like the the latest one with the gold. Yeah, that's, that's because of, because of China? China. Yeah. Huh. Well, I appreciate that. I think that's a pretty fucking phone. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm not saying it's a cheesy thing. It's just uh, it's. I think that's a what you cultural a cultural fact. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Red and gold. Yeah. You ever going to go to overseas or anything like that? You, you learn know, other languages? Uh, I'm not so... I mean, I, 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 
like everyone, I think it would be amazing to speak a bunch of languages. And anytime I hear about someone who like works for the UN and speaks five languages, you just like follow, like even though you don't even know them, you're like, I think I'm in love with that person <laughs> because it seems you're like the smartest person in the world. <laughs> it seems like they're so goddamn smart. Yeah. And, and like along with that must be incredibly romantic and sensitive and, you know, like all these ludicrous things that you think. I didn't say I could speak them well. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody in the other languages is like, he's technically speaking our language, but he's a total dumbass in every language. We, anyway, um, what I think is kind of amazing about this summer for me is realizing, you know, and granted, this is like the second day into it, but that I am working outside of the city that I work in mm -hmm. standardly. And so if it's if I'm able to do this here, and that remains to be seen, it's possible that it's just better to stay in one place. But so far, so good. 24 hours of whatever. Um, if I can do that here, then it's possible that you could do it anywhere. And probably like in generations, you know, people just like how my parents were like, oh, you're going to live in Toronto. <laughs> It was yeah. so far away. Uh, and then you live in Los Angeles. It's so far away. Like I see them a couple times a year. Probably in a couple generations, it's going to be like, like right now, it's like he's gone to China. That's so amazing. And he's having these adventures. You know, like I would think like maybe my niece and nephew are going to go to China like for college. Sure. Maybe that's like a little bit too close or whatever. That's still like far away. But probably eventually it's going to be like no big deal to live across the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really exciting. Yeah. Because the idea of being in another place is so interesting and great. At the same time, there really is something about home. Mm -hmm. And there really is something about being around you know, your roots and familiarity. And, you know, maybe that's the great thing about traveling is coming back. The thing that I find weird is I go back to visit my parents. My parents are living in my grandparents' old house. Mm -hmm. And you wander around the neighborhood and it uh, brings back memories, that, that kind of cliche. Mm -hmm. you, you see old signposts and stuff and you go, holy crap. I just, that just reminded me of waiting at the bus stop in grade six or whatever, <laughs> or, or at age six yeah you know even further back um and it's a it's a funny kind of thing that you would only get if you revisited that part of of your brain and of your memory yeah you know like, and things that you never would have like would never cross your mind unless no amount you of meditation or like dreaming or whatever would take you back to the memories that happen when you walk into your childhood house and you smell something that oh my childhood you go like, oh that so clay good. smell <laughs> i remember that great. clay smell the fucking ticks that I used to get in my ears and the neighbor, he had all those, <laughs> those bent metal artworks on his, his wall, the oh. portraits made out of coat hangers. And, yeah. <laughs> nice neighbor. <laughs> but yeah, that's definitely the aspect of, of going home that I dig. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You Do you speak any other languages? No, I don't have that's any facility sad, right? for it. Like I, the, uh, I went through French class and stuff in elementary school and none of it stuck. Yeah. I quit it for band. <laughs> it was an option like you could either keep playing an instrument yeah. or take French and I was like I was so relieved after grade 9 French I'm like thank fucking god I don't have to do <laughs> why this why did they make it so like why didn't they just show us like forget Paris mm -hmm. or the American president mm -hmm. you know that scene where Annette Benning speaks French to the like French ambassador like if you had shown me that scene I would have been like great 
yeah. I'll stay in this yeah. classroom. But there's as so it was, many, there's so many really interesting subjects in high school that are ruined by the fact that it's high school. <laughs> right. So they have to grade everything and they have Thanks. to give you tests and stuff. It's like, can't there just be electives where you just show up <laughs> and you have a f- French teacher who's only going to speak to you in French and you're going to watch French movies and you're going to read French books yeah. and everybody gets an A for attendance and that's <laughs> right. it. It's just exposure to stuff. French movies is the thing. French mm-hmm. movies or like the way that like people, the, what, the reason why kids want to become guitarists or rock stars. It's like just make them think you're going to get attention and chicks mm-hmm. and like people will love you mm-hmm. if you can speak French. But you never really, and it's true, people will <laughs> love you. I thought that you. was where you were going with it. <laughs> Where was I going? Where was well, I going? There's a Seth Godin idea that um, if you wanted, to, like, that school is is completely crazy, mm-hmm. and that uh, if you want to make somebody to a baseball fan, you don't do it by having them go to a building and sit at a desk and read about baseball for four hours a day, and then do a multiple choice test about baseball. And then repeat that at like several levels of difficulty. You know, <laughs> right. you get you pl- you play baseball. If you like it, you watch it on TV. You experience things yeah. in order to get to love them. Uh-huh. Much like music class, like the way you make a musician, you listen to music, you experience music, you become a fan of it, you try to play your own, blah blah blah. You yeah. don't sit down with a book and read about music yeah. and write tests about it. Or it's, play with a bunch of other kids that sound like shit, mm-hmm. which is what I think most of us went through and we're like, oh, this is not <laughs> very good. Is Seth Godin the purple cow guy? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, but I he's thought I thought it was Godin, but you said Goten. You sort of pronounced Godin. it. Goten. 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 Uh, I read The Purple Cow, or I read a quarter of it before I was like, I think I understand what this is saying. Yeah, that can happen with those academic idea books, right? Where you kind of, you say like, oh, this is the same anecdote over and over again with yeah. different people. His stuff is best, uh, the audiobooks are best. Oh, really? Yeah, Does if you get the audiobooks or? and you listen to those when you're jogging or whatever, um, he's... It's like the same idea um, thrown at you a lot of different ways, mm-hmm. but within that matrix, I find those those things to be like so deep. Like yeah. everything, it, it, I've listened to probably all of them six times, and each time I, I hear something that I didn't interpret or understand the first time through, or I'll pick up on a new thing that's relevant to what I'm doing mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. I think that um, oh, that's really interesting that mm-hmm. it really changes with an audiobook because mm-hmm. the reading book was too because you can um, you can do other things while you're doing it and your subconscious and your conscious mind will pick up on ideas and then apply them to what you're thinking about already mm-hmm. and then there's like a synergy between the two of them where you go like is this like, particularly linchpin the the newer one and icarus deception if you if you listen to those two they're very inspiring and linchpin's wow, all about really artists have his library like down mm-hmm. i gave up check out uh download the linchpin um audiobook it's very inspiring it's it's about artists and applying art to like everything you do not just not just um making music or whatever but yeah. um trying to approach um doing your taxes at a world-class level, mm-hmm. speaking at a world-class level, trying to be human and generous and honest and creative in everything you do. Yeah. Not, not, not settling for being um, 
just uh, the the status quo or like the 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 bare minimum of acceptance. Mm-hmm. Like you're trying to go out of your way to be the best person that you can be. Yeah. Because um, like one of one of the reasons why um, Seth Godin was talking about education and that one thing I was riffing off a minute ago is um, in Icarus, Icarus Deception, he um, puts forward the idea that um, Icarus is the, the ancient Greek story that everybody knows about um, uh, the kid who flies too close to the sun and his wings melt and he falls into the ocean. I only know that from a Joni Mitchell lyric. <laughs> but the thing that's the deception part of it is the story is only played out that way in the last hundred years since the Industrial Revolution. What the story used to be was, um, I forget what, uh, which, if Icarus is the kid or if Icarus is the dad, but the father says to the son, um, don't fly too close to the sun because your wings will melt. But more importantly, don't fly too low because your wings will be sodden by the ocean and then you'll surely perish. Mm-hmm. So it was a warning to say, avoid hubris, but more importantly, don't um, fly too low. Don't have your ambitions too low. You have to 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 go into life with a little bit of recklessness and try to push the boundaries and try to believe that there's a better future and it's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and the industrial revolution, when they wanted to indoctrinate people in our uh, industrial school system, they cut out the second part because they wanted everybody to be average and be able to work in factories and things. So the whole Icarus deception book is kind of reaffirming the idea that like, we have the technology to start building the Star Trek future where Mm -hmm. we can have abundance and we can get rid of poverty and we can do cool things like spaceships and and all that. But we got to believe in it. We can't be settling for just getting ever cheaper donuts and like more cable stations and different kinds of donuts. (laughs) Who fucking cares? He he, one, one of the great lines from his YouTube clips is he goes, uh, he's like, the cell, the cell phone you have in your hand is more powerful than all of the computers in the seventies. Yeah. You know, by a thousand times. Uh-huh. And what are we doing with it? You're playing angry birds. Yeah. You know, they're connection machines. Like you could be emailing like a, a great hero or a mentor or like somebody that could really change your life with that connection. Yeah. But, but isn't that, don't... isn't that also sort of like a kind of, I mean, there's like a flaw in thinking like that, mm. you know, of that um, just like constantly, fucking doing something oh yeah yeah, yeah. you know what i mean like just if you go into that mindset you can never be doing enough Mm -hmm. which can also drive you fucking crazy which gets me back to the cosmos thing of like we're gonna be fine (laughs) (laughs) like we were fine 500 years ago Mm -hmm. it's fine it's all fine yeah I mean, it reminds me of a, we used to have an art gallery in our squat on Adelaide Street, like when we came out of college. And um, uh, it was the only residential building on Adelaide. So it was this tiny little matchstick building in a giant parking lot surrounded by large industrial buildings on the street. And um, it had used, it had originally been a um, thread store where you'd buy thread of different colors. Mm-hmm. So it had like um, shop windows in the front. And so we thought it would be fun to set up an art gallery in it and have our bedrooms on the top floor and in the bottom. So anyways, we put up a sign for the gallery and uh, my friend Rob wrote priceless slash worthless on, on a piece of canvas and he put it in the window. 
And I thought that was such a like perfect metaphor for post-college art. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because we're just fucking around. You know, some other person might find value in it or find it stimulating because mm-hmm. they don't have the same background or whatever. But hmm. what happened to him? Yeah, that's the way the world is. Where is he now? soundmusic.com mm-hmm. and um, you know we've written the music for some films lots of great things coming from Alexis in the future and uh, if you've a, listened a trip this back long, to Winnipeg send me an email I would like to meet you if you could listen to us talk for two hours <laughs> yeah if you're if you believe you know what you can look at the statistics I can show you on the thing we've been doing this like a month uh-huh. we have a number one fan he lives in, I think, Saudi Arabia. He's listening. He's listened to every episode twice. Oh. So I don't know if it's a computer glitch, but. <laughs> God bless you, sir. <laughs> Wherever you are. If you're ever in LA. You guys are building some beautiful things in that country. Yeah, shit. I would love to see that country. Get out there. Get out there, man. Become global. That's like the new. I think that's going to be Gen Y's. Um, the thing that we're defined by is that we're non-national. We become citizens of the earth. Are we Gen Y or are we millennials? I we are Gen Y. <laughs> I think we're millennials. Millennials are the kids that were born around the millennium. I think... 2000. What? No, I, th- I thought millennials were like 1982 and over. I mean, these things aren't real. The, the ge- what the generations aren't real so like everybody <laughs> defines it differently but gen x is like the people who are in their 40s you okay know? The people y who are 30s. younger like ni- 1980 kids like in their 30s so gen y millennials are the kids that are in their 20s now yeah or younger well i people, think they're internet post internet cool kids yeah. the ones that are you know we're I don't know how they're going to turn out. They seem to be... They're going to be fine. Yeah, everybody's going to be fine. Everyone's going to be... <laughs> and the great Neil deGrasse that Tyson. might not be their objective at all. It might be the opposite of their objective. And I'm sorry I got it wrong. <laughs> we'll revisit. <laughs> I'll find some great Neil deGrasse Tyson to splice in there during the topic. Well, and it'll make it seamless. And it'll make us all seem smarter. <laughs> Good. Right on. Okay. That's it. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>